0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Graham Alman pitts recording on location in Baltimore. Joining me today to talk about her first book is Professor of History at George Washington University, Shira Robinson. Roughly 150,000 Arabs managed to remain in the part of Palestine that fell within the new state of Israel after 1948. They represented 15% of the Palestinian Arab population who had lived in that territory prior to the war. The grand majority lived under military rule. Nevertheless, the Palestinian inhabitants of Israel would gain citizenship and the right to vote. It is to unraveling the implications and contradictions entailed by the construction of a liberal settler state that Shira Robinson devotes her first book, Citizen Strangers. Welcome to the podcast, Shira.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So you begin the book with a conversation that happened in the 1960s between Tofik Tubi, an Arab deputy in the Knesset, and David Ben Gurion. So I'm curious, you know, why you chose that that anecdote to sort of highlight the argument of your book?
1: I chose that conversation to highlight the argument of my book because Tofik Tubi goes there with he's basically summoned by. David Ben-Gurion, who had been the prime minister and defense minister for um, almost the entirety of the period of military rule, the the period between the 1948 war and the 1967
0: war. So Tubi was surprised to be called by David... So
1: Tubi was surprised to have been summoned by the the former prime minister and defense minister... Because he was used to being blown off by by the leadership of the Mapai party. He had spent years in the Knesset, um, and he was still at the time a a member of the Knesset or Israeli parliament, railing against the system that marginalized and dispossessed Palestinians, that um, deprived them of their ID cards, that uh, denied them access to their lands. And he was used to being blown off, to being cast as an enemy of the state, and to just basically being ignored. And here's... here you have the former prime minister and defense minister inviting him for a meeting. It's unclear why. And then there's this moment where he finally just puts the the puts the issue on the table where he says, I'm sorry to offend you, Mr. Ben-Gurion, which he says with the up- utmost restraint and politeness, but we are treated like natives. And it's just this bombshell right. that um, Toby and others didn't um, find themselves daring to say in public in front of Jewish right. Israeli audiences. And how did
0: David Ben-Gurion react to that?
1: Well, basically, we don't know if he had a kind of facial expression that that expressed surprise or indignance or anger. All we know is what was recorded in the transcript, which said... You know, under the British, we were all natives.
0: Even evoking some kind of solidarity between Jews or and Arabs, or not
1: solidarity, maybe not solidarity, but parity. You know, we okay. were all we were all colonial subjects right. under the British mandate, right. and so you can't suggest that we are the imperialists here.
0: And This is an important moment in your book where you show that the Zionist project, as pursued by Ben Gurion and others, as imagined by them, isn't only about excluding Palestinians. It's about having them participate in the state project somehow. And is that what's going on there? Where David Ben-Gurion kind of wants Tubi to say, you know, okay, like, things aren't so bad here. Like, he needs Tubi's approval somehow. Am I reading that correctly?
1: Uh, that's an interesting interpretation of it. I don't know if he needs Tubi's approval or he just wants the conversation, that part of the conversation and that question to go away. I mean, Ben Gurion is feigning ignorance about things he knows well about, so much about because he authorized them and encouraged their encouraged things like denying uh, Arab students access to the university, uh, houses being destroyed, people being denied permits, things like that. So I think he just wants. He ju- expulsions. I think he just wants the, the charge of colonial uh, imposition to disappear.
0: And so, in that regard, I think you're showing something that's very, you're, you're, you're showing this Israeli policy to be very coherent and, and, and very clear. It's about the exclusion of Palestinians, it's about maintaining Palestinians, as you quote one um, Israeli Arabist, quote, internally divided, economically dependent, and frightened. After I read that, I thought, you know, is that a long-term strategy? I mean, so you're writing about the period, you know, as this policy coalesces, most of your book takes place before, between 1948 and 1951. What did they have on their mind? I mean, did they want this population to be divided, dependent, and frightened forever? Or was there not? I mean, was this very contingent, right? Because, I mean, despite the policy's coherence, you also see this kind of lack of dissonance, right? Where they don't really have a plan because this doesn't make sense to maintain this population in this subservient status forever.
1: Yeah, I mean, plenty in throughout history, plenty of populations have rem- have been subject to regimes that try to maintain their subservience. So that part is logical in the abstract. But I mean, one of the things that characterized this period, as I have described it, and have, as some other a few other uh, historians have also seen, is is one of the ways that it has been described is um, its complete lack of coherence. And I think the reason that the policy was so incoherent was because the Yeshuv or the the Jewish settler community in Palestine before 1948 didn't envision having to contend with a sizable Palestinian Arab population. Zionism was imagined as a Jewish project for Jews, not as a Jewish nationalist project that also would involve Arab Palestinian participation, and so when uh, when Palestinians managed to remain in or return to the state in pretty sizable numbers after 1948, there was a great deal of fear as to how this population would fit in with the overall schema of right. Jewish nation building.
0: Right. There was no plan for that. I mean, so and that's what comes across so clearly is this. Policy develops in a very ad hoc way.
1: Totally and, ad hoc, which just, is, I think, how a lot of policy develops, point, you know, in general.
0: Of course. And, but so you write about this explicit acknowledgement that, for instance, when Palestinians are expelled, the people doing it say that we don't actually have legal cover to be doing this, right? Right.
1: Right, when people, so you're referring to what I refer to as the war on Palestinian return, and what the Israeli government referred to at the time as the war on infiltration. And part of the problem with the war on infiltration is, it had a good goal from the perspective of the state, which was to reduce the number of Palestinians in the state who who might one day be able to vote. But it also was happening without any legal structure. And so there were all kinds of questions. Are we expelling these people who don't have IDs or who even do have IDs on the basis of military laws, British military laws, Israeli military laws, Israeli criminal laws? We don't have a citizenship law, so if we don't know who can stay in, how do we know who can st- be pushed out? Right. It was all a complete vacuum.
0: Because Israeli courts, the, the Israeli high court acknowledged... Explicitly, I think, in 1956, that military rule and civilian rule cannot apply in the same place. This is a basic tenet of international law.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was, you're referring to my discussion of a court case regarding not Palestinians in Israel, actually, but this case regarding two or three uh, Israeli military uh, officers who were in the Gaza Strip during Israel's occupation of Gaza. They had bought, or I think they had purchased some. Some goods from a Palestinian shop, and there was a question as to whether or not they were allowed to do that um, as soldiers. And there was a discussion in the ruling about whether um, you could have the ap- you could have both military and civilian law applied at the same time. And the judges, one of the judges, said emphatically, "International law suggests that you cannot." And I found that so ironic because, of course, during this time, military and civilian law was being applied at the same time inside Israel, inside Arab communities.
0: Right. And the people imposing this policy were fully aware of these contradictions, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that there were some people that were more aware than others. And I think legal experts were more concerned than the average bureaucrat or civil servant was or even politician. I mean, these were sort of technical niceties that didn't have as much meaning as maintaining Jewish privilege did, meaning maintaining as much land, getting as much land for Jewish settlement and as much of the economy in Jewish hands as possible.
0: And you write about what you say is restoring the empire to the history of post-1948 Israel and post-1948 Israel to the history of modern imperialism. What do you mean by that?
1: The way that I, one way that I can um, explain my answer to that question is by talking about my experience in graduate school. When I was at Stanford in graduate school, post-colonialism was all, and post-structuralism were, of course, all the rage. And and I was a part of a um, reading group made up of faculty and graduate students called the Empires and Cultures Workshop. And I was just always struck, the more I started to read about Israeli military rule, the more I realized this was based on British imperial law. I mean, military rule was very much a legal enterprise, and it was based on British military law. At least that was what it was rooted in, and other Israeli laws extended out from from those British laws. But I never found anything in the readings that we did in this Empires and Cultures group or any other volumes that I would pick up at the library on post-colonial readings or, you know, Empires and cultures throughout the world. There was nothing on pre sixty seven Israel. There was almost nothing on Israel in general, but there was especially nothing on post nineteen forty eight and pre sixty seven Israel. There was quite a bit that was emerging on the pre forty eight period, the work of Gershon Shafir on the on the first um, wave of immigration on the mandate period, but it was, there was just this black hole that emerges
0: after forty eight. I'm curious why you think that was the case.
1: Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. One of which, one of the reasons is that, um, you know, it takes time in terms of archival laws for documents to come out. So I was lucky enough to be um, among the first uh, researchers to get access to some of the documents I looked at. So that's just a kind of methodological quandary and problem that we all as scholars face. But I think there was a more fundamental um, ideological and political reason why there was a black hole. And that As well as a scholarly one. And the political reason was that um, there was a kind of fantasy after 1967, and especially, I think, after the 1987 First Palestinian Intifada broke out, that, you know, the occupation is clearly immoral and unjust, and we have to remove this stain that is existing or that has been imprinted on the state of Israel because of its occupation of the Palestinian territories. And once we remove that stain, we can go back to the kinder, gentler Israel that existed before 1967. Right. And I think that was a, um, an idea that was desperately clung to by a lot of Israeli Jewish liberals and also American liberal Zionists. The scholarly explanation, I think, for why there was almost nothing, nothing on post-48 Israel uh, that really tried to engage this question of what is the state of Israel's relationship to imperial history is that Palestinians, after 1952, after the citizenship law was passed, gained citizenship. And that looked a whole lot different. Different from, for example, the situation of black South Africans under apartheid, from Native Americans in the United States until 1924, from Algerian Muslims in Algeria before the 1940s. So it did look genuinely different. And I think that scholars are only still really beginning to grapple with the possibility of um, the coexistence of liberal and imperial forms of rule in this most basic kind of glaring way in which citizenship can still be a possibility, even within an imperial framework. Certainly, postcolonial scholars love to talk about the relationship between liberalism and imperialism, but I'm, but I'm talking about it in this very explicit way where citizenship is, is, is there.
0: But I'm curious sort of why the critics of Israel haven't latched on to this before, i.e. the experience of Palestinians in the early state. The critics of Israel are many, a lot of ink has been spilled on the history of of Israel-Palestine, but this seems like such a fundamental topic that was left untouched.
1: Well, I think it depends on which critics you're talking about. If you're talking about kind of Palestine activists, or if you're talking about other groups. I mean, I think I've sort of talked a little bit about Jewish critics of the occupation and why they, some of them might be reluctant to... Think about this history in relationship to the state of Israel as a whole. I think for a long time, Palestinian citizens of Israel were viewed with some suspicion by both Palestinians and Arabs outside of the country. Suspicion right. for having supposedly accepted citizenship as if it was their choice or or, or agreeing. Right or for having agreed quote unquote to live under israeli rule
0: and as you show enthusiastically participating in israeli independence day celebrations which is something that, that we'll talk about a little further on
1: yeah i think there were a lot of questions about how palestinian on on the part of palestinians and arabs outside of israel as to how palestinians inside israel related to the new state and frankly israeli Public rela- the Israeli public relations um, machine worked pretty effectively to show pictures of what I call you know happy smiling Arabs voting dancing on Independence Day, uh, you know participating in athletic competitions at school, et cetera, et cetera. So there were a lot of mis there were a lot of misconceptions that were spread about this population.
0: But even in Tel Aviv, and this is what, and we're going to talk about the details of military rule here in a second. But what struck me is that sort of a left-leaning, bohemian class of people living very, very close to Arab areas under military rule had no idea about conditions in those places.
1: But we shouldn't be that surprised at the ability of people to be shut off from reality right next door. I mean, look at today... People in Tel Aviv have no idea what's happening in Ramallah or sure. in more remote villages in Area C. Sure. So, I mean, it's very. It was there was a convergence. There were there was a convergence of factors set up by the government deliberately to prevent Israeli Jews from from knowing more or being even interested more in what was actually happening just a few kilometers away.
0: For me, at least, reading your book, this is very complex topic. It's not easy to characterize the policy of the Israeli state towards its Arab minority in 1948, 1949, 1950, 1951. Mm-hmm. And so just the nuts and bolts of this occupation of Arab land. I mean, that's a clear contribution your book makes here. You show that by early 1949, the military government had divided the Galilee into 58 separate ghettos and they controlled movement between these areas. Your use of ghetto is provocative. I'm curious, this must not be the Hebrew word ghetto.
1: Actually, activists, I mean, I use the term ghetto. That didn't come from me. That came from my primary sources, both Jewish uh, activists on the left, particularly in the Communist Party at the time, and Palestinian activists inside Israel used the term ghetto, and it was a deliberate move to use that word. People were thinking about about Soviet Soviet resistance to um, Nazi occupation, the Warsaw Ghetto, the encirclement of Jewish communities in Europe into ghettos during World War II uh, and prior to that in earlier periods. So that was they a- They meant
0: for it to be provocative, in other words. It was, they, they meant for it to evoke- They
1: meant for it to evoke the Holocaust and anti-Semitism before. For sure they meant for it to evoke that. I don't think that language resonated with mo- most of the Israeli Jewish public- but that that was certainly
0: the goal. One of the most powerful pieces of the book that you bring to life, this sort of day-to-day existence of occupation and Arab villages through photographs. And these are photographs um, that we'll be able to include so the listeners can see them um, on the Ottoman History Podcast website. You also have a very vivid description of life under military rule. Can I get you to read there? Um oh. Just this very evocative passage about this question of infractions and passes.
1: Sure, this was a kind of general um, summary of, of what the permit system imposed by military rule looked like in general in the 1950s and 60s. In at least some Jewish towns, officers had to meet monthly quotas for the number of Palestinians they arrested on permit infractions and they were rewarded for exceeding them. This task was not difficult. Palestinians were desperate to harvest their crops, graze their animals, market their produce, look for work, and take their relatives to the doctor, and they often could not afford the bus fare to travel to the permit office. For these reasons, many soon found themselves entering a revolving door of summary military tribunals that were closed to the public and were headed by military officers with no legal training, and that deprived defendants of the basic due process rights they otherwise would have received in the civil court system. Although the army's general prosecutor could choose to try violations of the emergency regulations uh, in Israel's civil courts, he sent only 2% of the cases to them. Instead, inside the makeshift tribunals, justices offered no leniency for shepherds who, whose animals grazed off pasture, for travelers who returned after the expiration of their permit because their buses had been delayed, for village women who took the bus into town to sell yogurt so they could feed their children, for old men who violated their evening curfew to pray at the mosque, for a permit holder found at the edge of a Jewish settlement even though it was located along the assigned route or for anyone who veered from the route specified on his permit to buy a loaf of bread. Rather than protecting the state from physical assault or a threat to public security, the permit system was designed to keep the Arab population dependent on the regime for its basic means of survival.
0: And a consequence of that policy, as you show, a consequence for this state of dependence that Palestinians inhabit is that the Israeli regime is able to recruit Allies among the Arab Palestinian population.
1: Yes, I mean they had a wide re- network that they uh, cultivated of informants um, and uh, political operatives who would encourage village clan, uh, village and clan leaders to vote for the ruling Mapai Party led by. Um, Prime Minister and, De- and Defense Minister David Ben-Gurion, and also of people in the sort of ordinary population who weren't necessarily working actively for the regime or looking to inform on their neighbors or their brothers and sisters, though there were those people as well. But they recruited ordinary people to just keep quiet in conversations that, in which dissent uh, or opposition to the military regime's policies might be raised. They also actively, I should say, encouraged students to inform on their teachers, teachers to inform on their students. And some of this research, the research on questions of collaboration and informing, um, I take directly from Hillel Cohen's book and his research, um, the book Good Arabs.
0: And, and so this system of permits in a really straightforward way creates the context for people to sort of be compliant In regards to the Israeli state, because only one third of permits were approved, i.e., two thirds of applicants, your research shows, were denied permission to exit their villages, to conduct economic activity, to seek health care. Yeah, I mean,
1: we don't have accurate or complete statistics for any one, for the entire country or for any given year. We know we have snapshots of information about. Um, the the percentage of people who had their permit applications accepted um, and denied. But by and large, it's pretty clear to me based on the numbers I have seen that the vast majority of people were denied permits. And this was especially true in the first half of the 1950s or a little bit more because the Israeli economy was in recession and they wanted to privilege Jewish Labor over Arab labor, which meant that people couldn 't get permits to work, which was one of the most important or most common reasons why people sought a permit so compliance was secured by um, by denying people permits, making them dependent on the population and this had all kinds of ramifications it involved people agreeing to you know rally or or Uh, speak out on behalf of the ruling political party, Mapai, in order to get their family members over the, you know, return to them over the border. It involved people agreeing to celebrate certain holidays, like Independence Day, in order to get their permit, um, in order to get a work permit the next day. It involved people writing poetry for military governors. I mean, these things might sound like today, you know, some of these things might sound like what we might call a microaggression um but if you imagine having to do this over and over and over again every time you see a military official which was constantly in your who was constantly in your village or town it it created a form of com- of um surrender right that was incredibly demoralizing to the population right
0: and this policy ends some very clear sense as you write to deny palestinians access to their land and to labor markets and to work but also to prevent the return of Palestinians who have been expelled but then you show something very strange being that that's the purpose of this policy that the system of permits then became the venue to selectively allow refugees to return
1: right so here we're talking so now we're talking about two different things that we need to disaggregate so there were the Every day, kind of permits to leave a village, to leave village X or or town Y, right, um, to go out to work, to go to the doctor, to visit your mother, etc. But then there was a whole other set of permits, which I knew nothing about until I got to the archives, called a temporary registration permit, or what I shorthand in the book as a TRP, and these were permits that were given. To Palestinians who could not prove that they were present and counted on the day of the census in November of 1948, um, for all kinds of reasons, many of which were mundane, like I was a-
0: at least a third of the population wasn't under Israeli control at that time period in November of 1948. Right? These are the Palestinians of the so-called triangle
1: and the Galilee, also and the, and the much the Galilee of the Galilee well, was, okay. was was or the the story of the census is so. Interesting and complicated because it was such a mess. I mean, um, the occupation of the Galilee happens in October of 1948, towards the end of that month, and the the majority of the Galilee and the census happens, I believe, on November eighth. So the, they were hardly organized to go out and carry a census in these. Very freshly occupied villages. So, for all kinds of reasons, people were either not counted or they were counted, but they didn't get, they didn't have proof of the fact that they were counted. It was a huge paperwork nightmare. And for all kinds of reasons, including the ones I just mentioned, people did not have proof that they had been counted and they were denied um, the vague security that they would not be expelled. And the government wanted at this time to basically to thin out the population as much as possible lest people eventually when they got citizenship there was no citizenship law yet and um, but they wanted to prevent people from being able to stay and also being able to eventually if they didn't have citizenship yet or they couldn't prove that they had were there legitimately that they didn't the government didn't want them to be able to vote in the next election in a way that would somehow diminish Jewish privilege and potentially cause problem with the ban on the right of return. And so the government started handing out or distributing what they called temporary registration permits that kind of froze the status of those Palestinians who could not prove they had been counted in the census. And these were um, they were issued in the color red, as opposed to the color blue, which were the normal, um, which was the normal ID card color. And these were permits that you could hold um, for maybe two months at a time or six months at a time. It totally depended on who you were, where you lived, the circumstances of the bureaucracy in your in your village, and you were basically denied from existing for all intents and purposes. What what I mean is. You couldn't drive. You couldn't go to school. You couldn't. You certainly couldn't access your land, um, and you're you were subject to expulsion almost at any point. And many people with TRPs were eventually expelled. Other people managed to fight the fight the system in such a way as to stay.
0: And this becomes the venue for exacting concessions out of Palestinians, but also, and you described this very bizarre ritual of military officials and soldiers going to Palestinian villages and basically demanding to be fed.
1: Yeah, this wasn't um, something that was exclusive to communities of people with temporary registration permits. But it certainly was endemic in those communities. And I mean, there is so much evidence of kind of culinary exploitation where people, military officers and their wives, police and their wives would go to Palestinian communities and basically demand that feasts would be served in their honor. Right. Um, and there Which is w- some
0: kind of orientalist spectacle, too, isn't it?
1: Total orientalist spectacle. These people, uh, these people are good hosts. They serve good food. We're just going to kick back, and we're going to, you know, sometimes we'll take pictures and call it coexistence.
0: Right.
1: Um, but it got to be so problematic from the perspective of the higher ups in the military that they actually started issuing bans on military officers eating in Palestinian homes because the military was worried that too many bribes were being offered. In other words, you give us food and maybe we'll we'll give you a permit.
0: And so while all of this is going on, Palestinians get the right to vote. they're voting with Israelis in the same elections as early as elections are being held in nineteen fifty two the citizenship is, law is passed. Palestinians in Syria become equal citizens in the state of Israel. You attribute this to outside pressure you know so so what sort of is the role of international diplomacy? in giving these rights to Palestinians.
1: Right. So, I mean, in order to understand the status of Palestinians inside Israel after 1948, you, ha- you have to go back to the mandate period. And specifically, in in the case of the question of suffrage and citizenship, you have to go back to the 1947 partition plan. And the reason is that the 1947 partition plan Required that both future states—the Arab state, which of course never happened—and the Jewish state would be required to convene in a a democratic assembly soon after that was soon after each state was established, write and and you know promulgate a constitution that would establish equality, equal citizenship, and the rule of law for all citizens, okay? And what that meant was that all citizens would have to be able to vote and they would all have the same status. They would be equal. So immediately after the partition plan was adopted in November of 1947, the leadership of the Jewish community in Palestine, of the Ashuv, and particularly of the Jewish agency, got to work on drafting a constitution The constitution was buried in the the aftermath of the first uh, elections or during around the time of the first elections in 1949. And one of the reasons the constitutional project was buried was because the leadership of the government did not want Arabs to be equal to Jews because if that was possible, they might legislate the end of the ban on Palestinian refugee return. Um, But they were in a precarious spot Diplomatically, because Israel's membership at the United Nations, its application for membership, was denied um, in December of 1948. So in January of 1949, the government said, OK, fine, we'll let some Palestinians vote. We can't let them all vote because some of them have just been newly occupied. It's complicated military rule, but we'll let some of them vote. So it looks good. We'll restrain their capacity to vote for independent parties, a la the satellite parties, a la not letting communists campaign And eventually we'll have a citizenship law, but we just haven't gotten around to that. So that explains why some Palestinians were able to vote in the very first election and also helps to explain why there wasn't yet citizenship, but that there needed to be a citizenship law. Because even though no one one was holding the hand of the Israeli government or putting a, a revolver to the to the Knesset saying you know the world wasn't putting a revolver to the Knesset saying we're going to ignore you and and vitiate your existence or repudiate your existence if you don't pass a, a citizenship law an equal citizenship law in 1949 Israel Israeli officials were worried that their first membership application bid had been Denied, and so they basically used the fact that some Palestinians were allowed to vote in the spring of 1949 to say, "Look, we're we're on the path. We need to legislate a citizenship law. It's complicated, but we did we did allow these people to vote. We've you know we're, we're we have these armistice agreements that we've just signed in April with our neighbors. We're on the path. We'll eventually get the citizenship law."
0: And is there a level of self-justification to, I'm curious about this tension between having liberal trappings to your colonial, colonial project as a way of legitimizing the projects, you know, internally as well. And you give some sense of that when you talk about what Iran, Alan Payton's cry, the beloved country had when it came yeah, out. I mean, I, so there's a sense that there's a struggle with, are we setting up an apartheid system immediately from the beginning?
1: I don't think that most Israeli Jews thought about the possibility that they were involved in apartheid at home. I think that most and I think that many Israeli Jews, uh, not all, but many Israeli Jews uh, felt especially kind of the more intellectual bohemian types living in complete isolation from the realities on the ground a few kilometers away, thought of themselves as good liberal Democrats, but they didn't spend the time or use up any kind of mental energy to square the circle between their self-conception and what was actually happening in Palestinian villages or what was happening over the border in Palestinian refugee camps. And so I think people had liked to think of themselves as liberal Democrats. Some did, um, but that didn't translate into them looking within their own country and seeing what was going on. So it was very easy to say it's terrible what's happening in South Africa, but um, that didn't necessarily translate into an inward look. But I, I will say that one of the things that I was thinking about a lot when I wrote the book was how we measure this sense of what Israeli Jews knew about and thought about Palestinians. Did they? What did they know? What did they think about it? Did they, did they take the idea of liberal democracy seriously? And I think that some did, but I think a lot didn't. And I think that's a story that has been undertold. I certainly, most people in the Israeli government and the ruling party were not concerned with the universal rule of law. I don't think that, that was certainly not at the forefront of David Ben-Gurion's
0: mind. Sure, but we see in other cases where at least the trappings of equality appear to have convinced Israelis that they were involved in something righteous. You quote the editor of a mainstream daily, Davar. never before has the white man undertaken colonization with that sense of justice and social progress which fills the Jews who come to Palestine.
1: Well, that was actually a quote from pre-48.
0: Ah. And that
1: was, I think, a quote designed, That I don't doubt the sincerity of that quote on the one hand, but I also think it was designed to appeal to people outside of Palestine as a way of sort of recruiting future settlers and just kind of allies to the Zionist cause.
0: But so you don't think that same spirit survived the independence war and the, the nakba
1: i think that might have animated some civil servants who worked in what was called the arab sector but um it's hard to get at people's consciousness their inner consciousness in terms of like did they connect that sense of duty that racialized sense of duty to I guess, I mean, to a sense of liberalism. I mean, these things are very, very tricky to unpack unless you have access to memoirs and memoirs and documents and documents. And we don't have a lot of that stuff. We have some fiction and some documents, but getting at that inner consciousness of these, of these clerks and these governors is much harder than I would have liked.
0: But, so, but you also show something else, which is, and as you mentioned, somebody like David Ben-Gurion is actually very clear-eyed about what's going on. And he said, and I quote, a Jewish state without Darius Sin can exist only by the dictatorship of the minority, meaning that had not massacres happened like that at Darius Sin in 1948 in April, I think, Palestinians would not have left. There would not, a Jewish state couldn't have been created. So he's actually acknowledging the argument that you're making there in some very explicit terms, right? Where this history of dispossession was critical to the construction of the Zionist project.
1: Completely critical. And the, the contradiction between the demographic reality and the, suppo- and the, and the, the idea of a, of a democracy were just, it was a contradiction from the start of the mandate period. Right. And, um, and not with-
0: something that, that, that came from the period post-67 or later.
1: Oh, God, no. No, 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 no. I think it was made much easier for the government immediately in the immediate aftermath of 48, because compared to the aftermath of 67, most of the Palestinian Arab population was gone. It was a lot harder to contend with a million or so Palestinians in the occupied territories after 67, because they, of most of the social institutions remained intact. Most of the population had not fled and had not been expelled, although a huge number were expelled, right. hundreds of thousands. Um, but it was, it was nothing compared to the ratio of Palestinians who were gone after 48.
0: What strikes me here is that you're not saying anything that different than what David Ben-Gurion had said and had how he had described um, the, Zionist pro- the implications of the Zionist project in terms of expulsion, in terms of violence. You're not saying anything different than historian Benny Morris um, of the Israeli new historians and the birth of the Palestinian refugee question, You're saying this had to happen. At the same time, it seems strange to put you all in the same pot. You must not agree with somebody like Benny Morris about everything.
1: I'm not saying it all had to happen. I'm saying factors converged to make it happen. So I, I don't want to suggest that I think that, you know, the Nakba itself was as it exactly as it unfolded was inevitable, because that would be inherently a historical. I think we should not be surprised that it happened and we can trace the exact social, political, economic forces that made it possible. Um, I just need to be careful on that point because that's you know this big question about intentionality and was there a master plan and I always have to kind of no, you be show clear. No, conti- you show
0: so much contingency
1: here. There was a lot of contingency, but at the end of the day, we can trace very clearly why what happened happened um, and we can understand it historically in very clear terms. In terms of Benny Morris, Benny Morris is someone that came of kind of political maturity or political age in the 1980s I don't know exactly what his reaction to Sabra and Shatila, the Sabra and Shatila massacres in Lebanon uh, was in 1982, but he was certainly among the small group of Israeli soldiers who protested, uh, who refused to serve in the occupied territories after the first intifada broke out. So he was very much, at that time anyway, a kind of bona fide two-stater. I don't, he was also, after he wrote his first book, The Birth of the Refugee Problem, he was very clear-eyed about what what actually happened in 1948, right. but he didn't necessarily connect what happened in 48 or the occupation in 67 to what happened in the intervening years. And that was precisely my objective or one of my objectives in writing this book was to say we have not been looking at the story of this conflict holistically. We've been looking at the pre-48 period and the post-67 period and drawing very legitimate connections between the two in terms of labor patterns, in terms of settlement, in terms of the use of force, um, et cetera, et cetera. But to, to take out the middle period just makes no sense. It doesn't make sense empirically. There were Um, plenty of people involved in the 1948 war in policy and at the level of just military action who expelled Palestinians or who authorized the expulsion of Palestinians who then went on to become government Arabists after 48. And there were people we now know who were involved in land legislation, um, land confiscation, education, all kinds of spheres of government that worked in the pre-67 period and in the post-67 territory. This is implicit in your book. It's implicit in my book because I'm a believer in laying out evidence um, and not hitting you over the head with the implications. But I think the implication of the book, which I allude to in the very last few sentences of my book, is that the situation or the the instability of the Israeli political system... Today, insofar as we want to call it unstable in the sense that there's a lot of opposition there's a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen next with the Israeli political system um it's not going to go away with the, if even if in a fantasy world we could just snap our fingers and end the occupation um that would not that would not uh solve all of Israel's political or economic or social problems there are deep rooted problems that relate to what happened. In 1948, certainly with the refugees, which has not been addressed, but also with the fact that citizenship inside Israel is inherently unstable because of the ways that Jews and Arabs do not share the same category of legal status, and they never have.
0: We're here with the Ottoman History Podcast interviewing Shira Robinson about her book, Citizens, Strangers. We'll take a short break and be right back. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. Uh, Joining us today is Shira Robinson of George Washington University, and we're talking about her book, Citizen Strangers. So I'm curious about the title. It comes from a quote by David Ben-Gurion, I think, saying that
1: Actually, the title was crowdsourced on Facebook. I have to, I have to okay. confess. <laughs> right. But it was originally uh, the originally it was something it was going to be something like both citizens and strangers. And it comes from this. It comes in part from the David Ben Gurion quote that I think you're thinking of from uh, that he made a, a, in a speech he made after the Kufurkasa massacre in 1956. But it also this the the title "Citizen Strangers" or my use of those two terms at the same time comes from. All of the evidence that I I found about the dynamic and the nature of the relationship between Palestinians in Israel after 48 and the state, how on the one hand they were technically legally citizens, but in every other capacity they were treated as and felt like they were strangers, or what, what many Palestinians say is inside Israel is that they feel like strangers in their own land.
0: Right, and David Ben-Gurion, of course, had said that they aren't strangers, they're citizens.
1: Not only is there to be one law for the stranger and the citizen, but the stranger living among us is to be treated with love. So there's... You know, on the one hand, he goes on and then he goes on to say the Arabs of Israel are not strangers, but citizens with fundamentally equal rights in regard to human life. However, the civil status of any man makes no difference. The lives of all men are sacred. So there are a lot of different things going on in that passage. He's saying the strangers living among us to be treated is to be treated with love. That's a biblical reference. But they're not really strangers. But if they were strangers, they should still be treated well. So you could you could you could read that generously or less generously. And I think that it's just so convoluted, revealing the convoluted relationship of Palestinians to the state that I chose to kind of think about it in as much com- with as much complexity as I thought it deserved.
0: Right, and can I and. and- it's interesting how people on the ground at the time Palestinians grasped this convolutedness, this complexity this this complexity. Can I get you to read the epigraph of chapter two?
1: Yes, so this is this is um, a, a quote from Rashid Hussein, who was a Palis- a young Palestinian poet from the village of musmus. Um, he went on to move to the United States in the 1960s. Um, We are not the first people to be ill-treated, yet the ill-treatment to which we have been exposed over the length of the last or of the past years is of a strange kind. By means of the law, our lands have been seized, and by means of the law, military government has been imposed on us. And nevertheless, by the means of the law, we can speak and protest, and by means of the law, we can complain to the governor, and by means of the law, we can write and cry out and demonstrate against all this. It is a strange situation. Whenever I think about it, I keep on smiling. And you go on
0: in later chapters to narrate very strange scenes, specifically the celebration of Israeli Independence Day in Arab villages. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: When I mean one of the, one of the um questions that was raised in the aftermath of the 48 war when the dust or the fog of war had settled and the dust had cleared was was the sort of cultural question, the Israeli state As David Ben-Gurion said in 1949, I believe it was, we have a state but not yet a nation. So the state sort of took upon itself the project of cultivating a sense of Jewish nationness. But that raised the question of where Palestinians fit into the Jewish nation. And at first I think the assumption was, well, they're just not a part of it. We'll keep them kind of controlled through segregation and and ghettoizing them in these military closed zones. But then there was this fear that, you know, that would alienate them and they would, they would, as the fifties were on, there was this fear that that would only encourage them to kind of embrace Nasser and Arab nationalism over the border. So there was this tension between a desire to exclude them and a fear that they would be- But not too much. But not too much. So this um, tension and this um, contradiction animated a lot of policy- uh, policy officials uh, and they're thinking about the you know the the so-called Arab sector and basically what to do with these with these Palestinians and one of the ways that that got that tension came out was in state celebrations and holidays particularly Israeli Independence Day and in the beginning in the very early years it was not a national policy that or that, or there was no necessary expectation or imposition On Palestinian communities or certainly not on all of them to celebrate this holiday, but for a whole host of reasons, it became the site of um, demands on the part of Israeli military and other government officials to see Palestinians display what they called their loyalty to the state. It was never really made clear what loyalty looked like or what its parameters were. It was never made clear if there was the possibility that they could be too loyal, as golden suggested at one point in the early 1950s. And it was never made clear what the end game of loyalty would be. So like if they were fully loyal, might they be able to be equal? Um, none of these things were worked out, but they're there developed a dynamic in which there was an expectation, uh, a very serious expectation that Palestinian communities would celebrate Independence Day in full view of their governors and police officers who were you know, charged to surveilling them and controlling them, and possibly in return for that display of, of, of festivity and loyalty, they would be granted work permits the day after, um, they were, they're, they're, uh, it's oh, part of the
0: carrot and stick policy where they this go is out part and, of the carrot and, and, and act st- like they want to do it too, which is perform the sincerity as well.
1: Right. And it was never really clear whether these, Isra- it was never really clear on the part of Israelis or on the part of Palestinians, whether this display of fealty was supposed to be sincere or just a performance, a kind of Lisa Wadine as if, but it sort of didn't matter because the dynamic unfolded or the dynamic, um, Uh, kind of built up over time and became the norm. So, um, you know, Palestinian children grew up until the 1970s and even on after the 1970s learning, you know, my beloved country, which was the Arabic anthem for Israeli Independence Day, my beautiful country, I love my country, the doves are flying, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But it became also a site of deep contestation especially in the late 1950s. So in in
0: 1950, you set the scene in a village we've mentioned a couple times, Kufr Qasim, where you have border guards dancing debkeh with uh, villagers in the late into the evening. Right, as transcribed
1: by what appears to be um, an Arab or Druze. uh, I mean, even that distinction is problematic, but an Arabic-speaking officer, police officer in the border patrol
0: and the irony of this scene of sort of enthusiastic coexistence between the villagers and the border patrol cannot be exaggerated, you write. Why is that?
1: Uh, because this was a village that, um, while not having been the site of a massacre during the actual 1948 war, was under curfew every night, was uh, where villagers were very severely restricted in terms of their work opportunities. It was a very poor village. people had um, you know there was a very very small school at the time uh, that was underfunded and under-resourced. I mean people were living hand to mouth essentially um, they uh, you're a, you're a famine expert so that's probably I'm probably misusing the metaphor but um you know it, people didn't have milk or bread uh, on a regular basis and so why they would be celebrating um, the the dismemberment of their would-be state um, and their life under occupation just it boggles the mind. But if you understand the context that refugees that had found shelter in Kufur Kasam were being pushed out every day, uh, that you know people were living uh, very very desperately, you know, very desperate to get food and and work to, to pay for the needs of their families, you begin to understand the relationship of dependence that was created that might cause people to celebrate. But what I also think uh, is often underexplored uh, by historians is the emotional um, piece of this story. So maybe people had an opportunity to just let loose for a night. I mean, I don't know. We don't know beyond the, this is one of the challenges of historical methodology that we don't know so much of what was actually going on in people's minds. Did they believe it was a real celebration or were they just putting on the act? Did some people want to have a good time because it was a sort of relief from the daily experience of oppression? There were um, travel restrictions came to be lifted in the years after that celebration, everywhere around the country, so it was the one day a year that Palestinians could take the trains, could get in cars, could get on buses, and could just go wherever they wanted. And that in and of itself created a kind of lifting of the prison walls for a day, one day out of the year. And you know, if you lived under a a kind of ghetto-like circumstance every day, maybe you would want to just say to hell with it and Try to enjoy yourself on that one day, at least for a few hours. So there are a lot of aspects to this that we need, human aspects that we need to think about.
0: Right, and then moving forward six years, the massacre that happens in Kufr Qasim at the hands of border guards puts this whole spectacle in a very different light. So on the eve of the war with Egypt, there's this concern that there'll be instability on the frontier with what was then Jordanian-controlled West Bank. And so these soldiers are given orders to
1: to impose a curfew and to basically shoot anyone on site that um, appeared to violate that was in violation of the curfew by virtue of being outside. And this kind of free fire zone that was created the night of that night um, of October twenty ninth, nineteen fifty six, was not a new was not newly invented out of, or invented out of whole cloth. It had been policy during the war on infiltration or the war on return in 1949 um, and 1950 where free fire zones were created all along the armistice lines and between 2,700 and 5,000 Palestinians were shot and killed um, as a result of being uh, discovered on these, in these zones without a permit or were suspected of being in these zones without a permit. Um, So yeah, so there was a curfew imposed. There was a curfew imposed most nights, quite frankly, uh, in in the triangle region in particular, and that's where Kufur Qasim is along the border with uh, the what what became known as the West Bank, and um, but I think it was more strictly enforced that particular night. So there were villagers that were out working um, in uh, other farmers' fields, probably Jewish farmers or Jewish settlements. And they were coming home in groups uh, of lorries or of you know trucks, to kind of dump trucks or pickup trucks rather. And um, they were lined up in about nine different waves. They were lined up by border guards and summarily shot. Um, and there were forty-nine of them that were shot and
0: killed and murdered. Um, and so then you end this book with this spectacle of reconciliation. The but, sulha, yeah. yeah. And so. Invited to the Solha, which happens...
1: It happens about a year later in October, roughly October or November of 1957.
0: So some of the border guards who had committed the massacre were invited to the Solha.
1: The intention was to bring them to the ceremony, but villagers... Palestinians of, object. Palestinian villagers from Kufr Qasim objected to their presence at the ceremony. But nonetheless, the ceremony was experienced by a vast majority of the population in the village to be... Um, one of uh, to, it was an experience it was experienced as a complete humiliation because basically they were being asked to break bread with an army that was ostensibly um operated by a democratic government which they nonetheless had no access to even though they had citizenship and they wanted the legal proceedings against these officers to continue but it was clear that the government was using this supposedly oriental Custom or Arab custom of breaking bread to get over, uh, you know, a dispute as a way of bypassing and basically ending the trial of these officers, and that f- uh, effort failed. the The trial of the officers did uh, finish, and they were sentenced, but all of their sentences were commuted within a very short period of time.
0: But this becomes a moment, as you show, where the Israeli public, more broadly, sort of gets clued into the conditions and occupied Arab villages. It becomes sort of this moment where the mask falls off and this seeps into the mainstream press even.
1: Yes. So the mask fell off to a certain extent, although even then, I mean, the trial was covered very, um, you know, uh, thoroughly, but there were very few people in the press who were interested in connecting the actual events of the massacre to the structural conditions that produced it. So there wasn't a lot of debate during this time about military rule per se. There was still not a lot of information getting out, even just basic descriptive information of what Palestinian lives looked like under military rule. Um, And one of the interesting things that I just was thinking about when you asked this question was it is true that the mask came off of, you know, Israel's complete kind of... uh, purity of arms, or it's complete democracy for some Israeli liberal Jews. But there were many, many Jewish citizens who came to the active and vocal defense of the officers who were tried in, uh, tried for killing these Palestinians. And there were some people who said, well, they're just Arabs, it's no big deal, but, you know, to kill them. But more people who came to their defense said, look, these people are just, they were just obeying orders. They're just doing what they do every single day. Their actions, their killing of these, you know, villagers was not out of the ordinary, and they're brave soldiers. And to be trying them for the job that all Israeli Jews are essentially responsible for, which is protecting the homeland, i.e. Jewish land, or land claimed for Jewish citizens, why should we be putting these guys on trial or sentencing them for something that, you know, for protecting us, basically?
0: And that gets to the contradiction that that your book highlights, which is these people are citizens, i.e. the victims of the massacre are citizens of the state of Israel. They are not members of the Jewish nation.
1: They're not members of the Jewish nation. And one of the things that... Israel, the Israeli state, uh, has suffered from for all of these years is that it has never had a definition of Israeli nationhood or Israeli nationality. To this day, there is no such thing as an Israeli nationality. You are either Jewish or you're Arab or you're one of sundry other categories. But I mean, even as recently as just a few years ago, the High Court ruled that that the Jewish people were, or that the Israeli state—I can't remember exactly what they said—was not yet ready for the creation of a universal Israeli nationality. That's stunning and remarkable for a state that calls itself a democratic republic.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Shira Robinson.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you, listeners of the Ottoman History Podcast, for tuning in. Shira Robinson's book is a a very important take on a neglected period of the history of Israel um, treating the experience of palestinian subjects of the israeli liberal colonial state between 1948 and the end of military rule in 1966 look on our website for a bibliography relevant to this podcast and for more episodes thank you for joining bye-bye